And uh, we wish her for a slayma to Tamima and Muna Batavida Malko Shitikia Davida has been a, a student of ours for a long time, many years. And we wish her daughter Okay, I'd like to, the Pasha of Truma is about building the Mishkan, as everybody should know. And it goes into a lot of detail about uh, the insides, the Kalim of the Mishkan. And then eventually, you know, there's the Pasha of Truma, then Tetzaveh, the building of the Mishkan. So the inside and the outside of the, of the Mishkan are discussed. Now, it also presents all of this material as a mitzvah. And the mitzvah is Asuli Mikdash Vishakhanti Bitokham. Asuli Mikdash Vishakhanti Bitokham. I mean, you know the word Mikdash, let's ignore that word, right? Even though uh, we're going to see as you go on that the word is important, right? And, but, but we can't tell yet why it's important. And then it says Vishakhanti Bitokham, and this yields uh, like a major, um, a major theological problem. These words Vishakhanti Bitokham. I will dwell in your plural midst. Uh, so I could translate it, but that doesn't really mean I understand it. Right? Vishakhanti Bitokham. Basuli Mikdash, Vishakhanti Bitokham. There'll be a change. If you do the mitzvah of Vasuli uh, Mikdash, there'll be a change, and that change will be Vishakhanti Bitokham. Now, inadvertently, that leads to a major kind of theological question, which is discussed in this quote of Breshit Rabbah. Right? Vaivkaba Makom, we're talking about Yaakov Avinu. Ravhuna Vishay Rabbi Ami Amar. You see that? Do you see it? Rabbi Huna, it's the third thing on the page. Rabbi Huna, Bereshev Rabbi Ami Amar Mitneima, Mechanim Shemoshel HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Bikorei Oto Makom. Now you know that in rabbinic literature, the word Makom, place, is a synonym or a eponym for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. One of the names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Makom. Now this is not obvious in the Torah or in the Nevi'im because the word Makom usually just means place. So the Medrash says, Shehu Mikomo Shel Olam. That's why we call HaKadosh Baruch Hu Mikoman in order to sort of settle a question that God is Mikomo Shel Olam Ve'ein Olamo Mikomo. And so if you can understand that, you understand the theological questions. Not so easy to understand what the Medrash says, even though the words are quite simple and straightforward. In, in, in other words, in the world, say in Greece, there was a question of whether you know, God created the world, or the world and God were always there. There was like these two opinions. Right? One was, the, like I said, the Jewish opinion, which was that according to the Torah, that God created the world. And there was another opinion, that the world was always there, that the world was always there. So this language that's used in the Medrash, that used in the Medrash means, why do we call God Makom? 
What about God is makomi, right? What is it that makes us think that God is a place, a special place? And that is the fact that the world is somehow in the place of God. Because God preceded the world. And it's not true that the world, that God is in the place in the world, but that the world is in God. That's what the that's what the, the Medrash that's what the Medrash says. So we understand. We understand that there's an issue about place, about God being in a place. So that Pasuk that we read at the beginning, Vasuli Mikdash Vishakhanti Bitokham, Vasuli Mikdash Vishakhanti Bitokham refers to a place. It refers to a place. And it was when you when you build the Mikdash, you have a place. And, and that place is the place of God. So it's the opposite of what it says in the Midrash, seemingly. That Vasuli Mikdash, make, make a Mikdash, but that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the story. I want to look at this Rambam. The Rambam that uh, is in Hilchot Beta Bechira, Perik Aleph Halachabet. You see that Rambam? The Rambam says this. Again, we have to adjust. Yoshua coming into Eretz Yisrael with Bnei Yisrael. What happened to the Mishkan that they built in the parasha of Truma and Tetzaveh? Where did it go? Where was it? Where was it? Now we know that the Mishkan and the Midbar was like Lego. Like you could take it apart and you put it on wagons and you could move it to the next spot that you would come to. But what happens when they came to Eretz Yisrael? Whatever they came to Eretz Yisrael, because every place they came to in Eretz Yisrael, they conquered. And there was no need to leave it, right? They didn't have to leave it, as we'll see presently. So the Rambam says, history. Kevan mishkan Gilgal is the name of a place, right? I once did Miluim in Gilgal. It was awful. But, you know, it was, it was a place. Arba Esrei Shana was there 14 years. What does the number 14 have to do? It took 14 years to conquer the land. It took B'nai Israel 14 years to conquer Eretz Kenan. And during those 14 years, right, the Mishkan, Hamidu HaMishkan, they took the Lego Mishkan and they set it up in Gilgal. That's what the Rambam says. Abbas Shana, Shekavshu Vishekhilku. Right? That's, those are magic words for the Rambam. Kibush and Chalukah. Conquest and dividing the land up amongst the tribes. Why are they magic words? What magic is the result of kibush, of kibush and, uh, and chalukah? The magic is that Eretz Yisrael became the place where mitzvot pluyot ba'aretz were imposed. When were they imposed? When did we have to do the, the, the mitzvot at pluyot ba'aretz? After kibush v'chalukah, or kibush and nachalot. Those are the those are the two the two magic words, umisham, umisham ba'ul shiloh. 
Umisham Baal Lashilo. Now, they were in Gilgal. Though they moved to Shiloh. Why did they move to Shiloh? I don't know. Maybe because Shiloh was more central. And Gilgal, you know, Gilgal is on the Jordan River. And Shiloh is north of Yerushalayim. Is north of Yerushalayim. So you could say that <coughs> we're getting closer to our final destination, which is Yerushalayim. So he went from Gilgal, and now you're in Shiloh. What happened that made everybody move from Gilgal to Shiloh? That the Ramam doesn't tell us. Ubanu sham bayit shel avanim, and this is the magical uh, part of the Rambam, which you get from the Gemara. It's not like the Rambam is making it up, but he includes it. He feels important to say that in Shiloh, they built a bayit shel avanim. What's a bayit shel avanim? First, you have to say you don't know, because you don't know exactly what he means, as he will tell you in a minute. But what is the difference between what there was before and a bayachel avanim? A bayachel avanim is not Lego. You can't take it apart. I mean, how do you build a house out of avanim with, uh, with cement, or whatever it is you use as cement? So you can't take it apart. Where they put up the, the, uh, the, the building in Shiloh, the Mishkan in Shiloh, it wasn't the Mishkan of the Midbar. That came to an end. That came to an end. And then uh, they. Uh, the curtains. Right? You remember the Mishkan and the Midbar? There were these kinds of stands. They had stands, and then there were curtains that, that hung down, and so the whole thing could be taken apart and, and put together again, right? That's the Lego of it. So here, the Rambam says, the Rambam says, Persu Yiriot Hamishkan Alav. So I, I tried to understand the building in Shiloh. So it was like 50 50. It was a binyan shel avanim, it had stones, but it also had yuriot. It also had those curtains that were left from the mishkan in the desert. So it was a change, but not a complete change. And the Rambam says, the Rambam says exactly, uperju yuriot mishkan alav velo haytasham tikra. And there was no ceiling. No ceiling, it's not a real building. It's not a real building. Even if you didn't think that that's what makes a building into a building, uh, you know that the Beit HaMikdash did have a ceiling. Right? The, the, the important parts of the Beit HaMikdash were, were a building. Now, he says, the Rambam says, Shin Samach Tet Shana Amad Mishkan Shiloh. Shin 300. 369. 369 and 14 and 14. 83. 383. So we're now 383 into history of the Jews in Eretz Canaan. 14 years in Gilgal and 369 years in Shiloh. The difference between Gilgal and Shiloh is that Gilgal was an imitation of 
the Mishkan in the desert, it was the same, where Shiloh was kind of half permanent and half a carryover from the from the Mishkan in Shiloh. That Shin Shana, Amad Mishkan Shiloh. Eli. For some reason, you remember the stories, Eli and Shmuel Hanavi, and Eli's sons were not, you know, up to, up to snuff. And somehow, uh, the whole uh, Shiloh business came to an end. It, it blew itself, it blew itself up. Kshebet Eli, Charev. Charev. Uba'u Lenov. Uba'nusha Mikdash. So what would you say that means? What the Rambam says. When they came to Nov, Nov was the city of Kohanim. And for some reason, Shaul HaMelech, I mean, that's a separate story. But what does Banusha Mikdash mean? What is about this? So you could say, you could say that the Rambam says previously, when he talks about the Uriot, what does he call them? What does he call the Uriot? Uriot HaMishkan. Uriot HaMishkan. And now he said when they came to Nov, they built a Banusha Mikdash. So what is the difference with you? You could say, you don't have to, but you could say that the difference in a Mishkan and a Mikdash is that the Mishkan is Lego, taken apart and put it together again, and a Mikdash is permanent. Stones, red set up, regular, yeah? How can you say that when we opened up with Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I, I will. No, I think it's a. I think it's a proper question. Is Vadosha Mikdashu Shemet Shmuel 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 Anavi Right Shmuel Anavi Charev. What was destroyed? The Mikdash, the Mikdash in Nov, Ubau Legivon. And then they came to give on the Banusha Mikdash, Banusha Mikdash. Again, Mikdash. Umigavan Baul Beta Olamim. Beta Olamim is a synonym for Beta Mikdash. The house which is forever. The house which is forever, you can't be more permanent than Beta Olamim. That's really, that's really, not only is it permanent, it's, it's a kind of forever place. It turns out that what the Rambam means, what the Gemara means, is that there'll always be, the building of the Mikdash will always be in that place. That place will never change. I mean, I have to say that because we know that the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed on several occasions. V'yemei no v'givon sheva v'chamishim shana. Sheva v'chamishim shana. So that means that as you ask correctly, you ask correctly, the Pasuk says, Rasuli Mikdash, Veshachanti Vitocham, and we know that the parish of Truma and Ditzaveh is about the Mishkan. So, so, but you could say, you could say that there is, within the context or in the notion of Beit Mikdash, there is this idea of building the ultimate Beit HaMikdash, the real Beit HaMikdash, the permanent Beit HaMikdash. And where is that? That's going to be in Yerushalayim. And so that, that the building of the Lego Beit HaMikdash, that's, uh, 
when they came to Eretz Kanano, the building of the half-half Beit HaMikdash in Shiloh. We don't know exactly about Nov and Givon, but you know, also probably the same, it was the same, is these are all steps in the direction of building the Beit HaMikdash in Yerushalayim, which will be built in the permanent place. The place will never change. So that could be a Pshat of Vasuli Mikdash, I think, and I think it would be a proper, a proper pshat. Now there's a pasuk in Yeshayahu which describes the movement to Shiloh. The movement to Shiloh. And the pasuk says, you see that pasuk Yoshua, Perik Yud Chet? Vayikalu kol adat b'nei Yisrael Shiloh. Kol adat b'nei Yisrael Shiloh. I guess it means that they were representatives of all of the of all the various shvatim and they were all in Shiloh at and they gave a dwelling place for the Oel Moed. Now Oel Moed is a term that we understand from the Mishkan, from the time of the desert. There was an Oel Moed. The word Moed uh, means Vaad. A, a, a getting together, a calling together of, of people. And the word oil means, in terms of the conversation that we're having, the word oil means it's not permanent. It's not finished. It's not fixed. It's not the way it'll be ultimately. But when they got to Shiloh, by Shavet Ol Moed, Va'aretz Nichbesha Lifnehem. Va'aretz Nichbesha. Uh, Look at the Rashi. Which Oel Moed are we talking about according to Rashi? The Midbar. So that means Shiloh. Shiloh was still, was still in the Midbar. We were looking at the Lego of the Beit HaMikdash. Does the Rambam, does the Rambam say that? Mm-hmm. It didn't have a ceiling. So Rashi says it, and the Rambam says it. In, in other words, Tikra determines the ultimate. Why, why would you say Loya Sham Tikra? Why would the, the, the Rashi say there was, no, there was no roof in the building? Unless having a roof is something important, it's something noticeable, it's unfinished. Even though the Rambam said about the Mikdash in Shiloh, if you look, uh, he says, In other words, there's a difference between Shiloh and Gilgal. Gilgal, there was just an imitation of the, an imitation of the desert. What happened to the desert? When they got to Shiloh, there was a Bayat Shel Of course, it was not complete because there was no Tikra. And they used the Yiriot of the Mishkan. They used the Yiriot of the Mishkan. So Rashi says, Shasuba midbar v'loi hashav tikra el abayat shel avanim milamatan v'yiriot milamala. V'yiriot milamala. So it turns out, Rashi says, kach shaninu v'shchida z'kotshim is a, is a, is a parak in Tzvachim. So he says, kach shaninu, this is what we learned. This is how it is. In other words, the Mishkan slash Mikdash is not just something you have to have, but it contains within itself a kind of development. You have to, 
it has to be appropriate to you. You have to be able. You have to be able to. You have to deserve it, so to speak. And the proof that you can't just get it is that it the mikdash, the Beit Hamikdash, was built over the course of four hundred years. And during those four hundred years, the building kept changing. Right? It became better and stronger and more permanent. And, and achieved a permanent place. Why didn't they go to Yerushalayim right away? I mean, okay, they hadn't captured Yerushalayim yet, but they could have changed the battle plan and then gone to capture Yerushalayim before they went to capture Gibbon and, uh, and Shiloh, for example. But they didn't. They didn't because they weren't ready for that. They weren't ready. So they had, they had these two things. These two things are pulling them. You know that the Ramban, at the beginning of... of uh, of uh, Truma, the, Ramba, the Ramban in the beginning of Truma says that the Beit HaMikdash is a model, or the Mishkan, I'm sorry, the Mishkan is a model for the uh, uh, event of Matan Torah. Right? It's, it's the same thing. It's taking Matan Torah away from the, the moment and we take it with us, which is why, which is why according to Rabbi Bechaya, Rabbi says, you know, the Jews never looked for Har Sinai. They never organized like, you know, they have these guys that could organize your trip to Uman, but they don't organize your trip to Sinai. Nobody wants to go to Sinai. How come? How come nobody wants to go to Sinai? I mean, it's true that there are two places that are identified as Sinai, one in the north of the Sinai Desert and one in the south. But okay, so you're going to take two trips. I mean, what's wrong with going to Har Sinai? Nobody goes. This is not my idea. I'll tell you, the Rabbi Rebbe says it. Why doesn't anybody go to Har Sinai? Because Har Sinai doesn't exist, according to the Rambam. Because we took Har Sinai with us. Wherever we go, right, we're involved somehow in the process that you might call Matan Torah either by learning Torah or by building the Mishkan and the Mikdash. You kind of, I mean, that's what you do. So if you've got it, you're not going to go to the place because the place doesn't really exist. That's the, Rabban, the Rabban's idea. The place, I mean, if you're thinking of Matan Torah, so it doesn't exist because Matan Torah took place, but then it continues all the time within our community, within ourselves. So we're the ones, we're the ones who... Uh, who received who received the Torah? So, one more one more uh, statement in the in the Gemara. You see the next next thing. Matagim Tzvachim that could yud bet amud bet. Bow the Shiloh, Nesru Habamot. Nesru Habamot means that before Shiloh, before Shiloh, when the when the Mishkan was in Givon. Lo abamot. And lo abamot, lo abamot means that everybody could, could make up his own uh, avodah. He could have his own he could have his own mizbeach in his backyard, and he could have his own avodah, and he could do what he thinks he, you should do to serve God. But when they got to Shiloh, the Gemara says, le Shiloh abamot. Now you know that that's the halacha of the Beit HaMikdash. That when the Beit HaMikdash existed, you couldn't, you couldn't make a, 
a bama. You couldn't do that. You had to only sacrifice to God in the Beit HaMikdash. The exception, of course, is Eliyahu Navi, who sacrificed in Harakarmel, and the Gemara calls that Ahora'at Sha'ah. Ahora'at Sha'ah means sometimes a prophet can tell you to do something that contradicts the Torah as long as you know that it's for a specific time and purpose. Ahora'at Sha'ah, it's the teaching for the, for the moment, for the hour. Right, that's Ahora'at Sha'ah. So, uh, so we have uh, uh, that Gemara, I'm sorry. The Gemara says. And in, uh, in Shiloh, there was no Tikra. In other words, it wasn't yet. It wasn't yet what we wanted. It wasn't yet what we wanted to be, but it raised the level of, of uh, Beit HaMikdash because Ne'esru Habamot. Velo Yasham Tikra, meaning it wasn't really the Beit HaMikdash. Ele Beit Avanim Bilvad Milamatan Vayiriot Milamala. This is where the Rabbam gets it from. There were stones, you built stones, meaning you couldn't move it from one place to another, but it was incomplete because there were these curtains that hung. Instead of having stone walls, they had curtains that made the walls. So it was this combination, as the Ramam, as the Ramam said. So you have, you have, if you think only in terms of the Beit HaMikdash, not in terms of the Avodah in the Beit HaMikdash, more or less, the parashiyot at the end of Shemot, Truma Tetzava Vayakel Pekude, are about the Beit, the Mishkan. It's about the physical building. It's about the physical building of, of, the, of the Mishkan. And we understand that in order to achieve the physical building of the Mishkan, in order to achieve it, time passes. And so we went from a Mishkan that was Lego, to another Mishkan in Eretz Yisrael that was apparently also Lego, to Shiloh, which added certain restrictions and was actually built uh, of stone to, uh, to some extent, to, and then we'll skip over Nov and Givon, right? Nov and Givon was sort of interim between Shiloh and Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim, the building was made of stone. It was also to, to sacrifice outside of uh, <coughs> outside of Yerushalayim. So all of that, all of that gives me an idea, right? Gives me an idea. Now, you know, Churban by Rishon, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and the actual, the actual exile was, from our point of view today, I would say very, very short. It was a very short exile. It was 50 years or 70 years from the time that the Babylonians exiled the Jews from Eretz, Eretz Israel, or Jehudah, they called it, to the time that they came back, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, right? Those were the leaders who brought back the uh, the people to Eretz Canaan. Now those people 
those people had still the taste of the Beit HaMikdash in their, in their mouths, in their minds. They remembered the Beit HaMikdash. There are many, many statements in the Gemara that seem to indicate that. They remembered the miracles that took place. You know, there's a Mishnah Pirkei Avot about all the miracles that took place in the Beit HaMikdash. That's the Bayadri show. And even though they could not reproduce the Beit HaMikdash, it was their dream to build the Beit HaMikdash. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, to understand the thing they wanted to do, the, the Hatzarat Koresh, the edict that Cyrus, the king of Persia, made when the Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael, which is in the book of Nehemiah, stated, you know, was you can go back and build a temple. You could build the Beit HaMikdash. That was the permission he gave them. So obviously, I don't know, obviously, so it probably was negotiated. You know, when they, when they talked to, to Cyrus about coming back to Eretz Israel, they wanted protection. They were enemies in Eretz Israel, right? We call them Samaritans. They were the kind of primary enemy. They thought that they would be able to build uh, another Beit HaMikdash, another temple in another place. And we wanted to build a wall around Jerusalem or finish the wall that had become destroyed, and also build the Beit HaMikdash. And Cyrus promised, Cyrus Koresh promised the leadership of the Jewish, it sounds sort of modern when you say it that way, right? Uh, he promised the leadership that they would be able to do it and that he would protect them. And, and in fact, the Chemia, you know that name, the Chemia, of that famous duo, Ezra and the Chemia. So the Chemia, the Chemia was actually uh, a, a Persian diplomat and he was able he didn't just he wasn't just the leader of the Jews but he had a lot of influence in the Persian court and he was able he was able to kind of get get it done to get the Beit HaMikdash started to build a Mizbeach I mean the, all you know all of that so that's Bayad Rishon and they built by Cheney was 50 years without forgetting. But the second diaspora that we are involved with, you know, the Roman diaspora, which is going on, I say, you know, even though here we're all sitting here in Jerusalem, but there are a few Jews who are not yet in Jerusalem, right? There is still a diaspora, but even the Jews who came back to Eretz Israel, you know, they came back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and it may be that they tell you that there were always Jews here, but not too many. There weren't too many. Most of the Jews were not here. Most of the Jews were experiencing diaspora. And what does it mean to experience diaspora? Don't tell me. I'll tell you. One of the things it means is that in the diaspora, there's no makom. There's no place that is differentiated from other places. It's all the same. And wherever you are in the diaspora, you can build a Mikdash Ma'at. That's what the Gemara calls a Beit Knesset, right? That's what the Gemara calls it. So you can build a bit, wherever you are, wherever you're standing, you can build a, Beit, a Mikdash Ma'at. And that Mikdash Ma'at that you build in wherever, 
You know, you build it in England, or you build it in France, or you build it in New Jersey. It's all the same. Ten people, you can dive in Mincha. Right? There's no difference. There's no difference between these people in this place and those people in the other place. So that diaspora, diaspora is a kilkul, right? It, it, it creates negative energy about things in the Torah. And so when the Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael, I'm talking about the, the Frum Jews, the Frum Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael for some reason, for some reason the idea of recreating the place did not seem to be uppermost in anybody's mind. It's true that today that idea has sort of been conquered by uh, uh, conquered by a certain political uh, type people, like you know, who have a political agenda. But there are very few religious people, you know, or people who you think are truly religious, whoever they may be. There are very few people who are truly religious who keep directing us to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, to make a place that... But we all seem to be happy living a life without the Beit HaMikdash, right? That seems to be the, the, what we inherited from the diaspora. So the first exile, the Babylonian exile, which turned into the Persian exile, it was, it was kind of short. And people remembered. People remembered that they wanted to they wanted to be part of the Beit HaMikdash. They wanted the mitzvah of Asuli Mikdash to affect them. And that's what they did when they came back to Eretz Israel. They built the Mikdash. I mean, they started out by building the Mizbeach. If you look at the book of Haggai, Haggai, uh, it's a short book. It's worth a, look. It's worth a glance. It takes almost no time to go through it. So uh, you look at the book of Haggai and you can just do the first paragraph. How's that? Even easier than actually going through it. First paragraph is enough. There are three prakim, maybe four, three, four. Well, you'll check it out. So, so in the book of Haggai, the Navi exhorts the people to find a way to build a Mizbeach, to get it going, to do it. This was what was on his mind and what was on their mind. And they say to Haggai, but we don't have any money and we can't really build it. And who are the big donors and where are we going to get people to, to contribute to our uh, enterprise? But they're all involved. That's a kind of involvement also, even negative is it involved. It wasn't that they turned away and said, well, this Navi Haggai, he's crazy. Nobody said that he's crazy. So you see, so you see, I think, you see that Vasuli Mikdash is not about now or is not even about later. It's something that is supposed to grow on you, something that might develop and become something real. It could take hundreds of years until you get up the stamina to make a Mikdash. Today, as I said, I don't think that people are into it. I don't see in Eretz Israel that people are into it. You know, we're up to a very preliminary kind of situation about whether we could walk on the Harabite or not walk on the Harabite. Uh, it seems, uh, seems uh, less enticing than it, uh, than it might be. Do we have this idea that the Benjamin Dash is going to fall from Shammai and Rashi? So 
it's not our mitzvah anymore to worry about it. <coughs> Is that right? That's what it means? It's not our mitzvah? I don't know. You're talking about a Rashi at the end of Sukkah. A Rashi does say, he does say that, but the Gemara doesn't say it. But it, what, what difference does it make? I mean, it, it all has to do with yearning. If you're yearning, uh, you get it. But here, we're, we, that, you know, Rashi was probably a man of the diaspora, probably. And he was also, he had to answer the question of why all these mitzvot, all these mitzvot connected to the Beit HaMikdash are not, they don't exist in these mitzvot. So Rashi says, uh, Rashi says, uh, well, you don't have to build the Beit HaMikdash because the Beit HaMikdash will magically appear when the time comes. Okay. But I'm not sure that if Rashi was living in Yerushalayim that he would be so much in favor of that idea, but I actually can't say that I know. Let's look at the Svat Emet. There's another idea in the Svat Emet that I would like to, uh, that I'd like to mention. I'd like to mention. Svat Emet says this, Basuk Vasudi Mikdash, Kechol Hashini Ma'ev, Chulei Tavnita Mishkan, Bechulei Kelav, Bechei Ta'asu, in, in, in other words, the, he's quoting all these psukim that indicate how you do what you're supposed to do in the Beit HaMikdash, how you make the building and how you make the kelim and how, like there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of detail in these prakim of Truma and Tetzaveh. V'chein ta'asur kvar katavnu mizeh b'mokom acher v'shorish advarim alpi ma'amar ha'gemara ha'rotzeh sheyitkaimu nechasav Yita Bahen Adar. Whoever wants his, uh, his property to exist, to remain, Yita Bahen Adar, Aleph Daladreshin, Emar Adir, the Merom Hashem. So he's like looking for a Pasuk that connects the earth to heaven. Ki Bevadai, Kol Hanivra, Yesh Bahem Nikudap Nimid, Lashem Yitbarach. He says, after all, anything that was created, anything that was created by God, I mean, this is a, a philosophical position which uh, many Jewish philosophers don't like, but the Svatimet the, the seems to say it. He says, if God created it, in some way it is godly. So if there's a stone, and God created the stone. So the stone, there must be some pnimiyut, some internal notion that, that, uh, that uh, is, is part of God. And that's what we can do. You see this sentence? Man has the capacity. He means man slash woman has the capacity. means you see things more clearly. You can look at something and see more than you thought you could see. To become aware of. That in every object, uh, animate, inanimate,
physical, not physical, every object that you can perceive, there's something godly. And that godly thing is, is for us to discover, right? And that's what the Torah means when it says, Vasuli Mikdash, Tavnita Mishkan, Perusho. Perusho, I'm in the fourth line, near the middle. Shebechol ha'adam a very common idea in the Zohar, in Kabbalah, in Hasidut, that we are in a, some kind of partnership with HaKadosh Baruch Hu in creation. And what's our job? I mean, we can't create the stones and the mountains and the rivers. We don't do that. But what can we do? We can create an awareness of the creation by looking really carefully, by looking really carefully at it. And therefore, that we somehow complete, finish uh, the, the work of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Everything, everything is reflected, everything is reflected in heaven. Everything that we see, everything that we touch is in heaven. So again, what does, what does the Svat Emet see in these parashiyot? He sees a lot of detail. He sees a lot of detail, and you know that detail is, is an issue. It's an issue for the parashanim. For example... Shabbat, which takes up a lot of our lives and our enterprise, no detail in the Torah, nothing. I mean, Lotavaru Eish Bekol Moshvotechem Biyom Shabbat. It was the Torah talks a lot about the fact that Shabbat was the day that God completed, stopped, no longer did uh, creation. But I'm talking about keeping Shabbat. There's nothing in the Torah about keeping Shabbat uh, except for that one pasuk. Lo tevaru eish b'kol moshvotechem b'yom ha-Shabbat. You know that in history, that pasuk created difficulty. Right? It, it, it demanded something and it was misunderstood. Like when we say lo tevaru eish b'kol moshvotechem b'yom ha-Shabbat, we say it's a malacha. It's one of many. It's just an example of a, of a malacha. But we can even get around it, as we learned with the man. Right? We, the man taught us that if you cook on Friday, you can eat it on Shabbos. But if you don't learn that way, and you just say, Lo tevaru Shabbat, you might come to the conclusion that you can never eat anything on Shabbat that is warmed. That is hot. You can't eat hot food on Shabbat. And the Karaites were the ones who possessed that tradition. It's hard to know exactly where the Karaite traditions came from. But we know that in the time of the Amoraim in Eretz Yisrael, there were Stukim and Prushim that had different ideas about the Beit HaMikdash, mostly. It was like centered around the Kohen Gadol, these disputes was centered around the Kohanim and the Kohanim Gidolim, and, and they are the ones 
they are the ones who uh, uh, who may have been the originators or the bearers of these other traditions, right? We know that uh, it seems that the Gemara, the, the our Gemara, the Gemara that we learned, uh, did not was not a repository for all the odd positions that might have existed. Right? That's why we have historians who can then go and look for those odd positions. But the, the Gemara doesn't have them. But that doesn't mean they didn't exist, that they weren't odd. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, Christianity and uh, the Essenes were popular when I was in college and everybody talked about the Essenes. They seem to have lost a little ground over, over time. But they had different ideas. They were, uh, they were a competitive set of values and ideas which was overwhelmed because the, I think, because it was only the Rabbanim the, who were willing to devote themselves to Talmud Torah. Nobody else was able to discover something that, uh, that enticed them quite as much as Talmud Torah enticed the, uh, these Jews. So, so you see that the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaMikdash, as I see it, the Beit HaMikdash, and this is what, what he says, there's a lot of detail in the parashiot of Truman Tetzaveh. And why is there so much detail? Why does the Torah tell us how to build it? Because the Torah is talking about reality. This is what there is. There's gold and there's silver and there's bronze. There's bronze? Brass? I know one of those. Copper? Oh, copper. So, so uh, uh, you have these things in the world and you have to turn them into, into a place where the awareness of God's intervention in creating the world is something that we see, something that we know, something we understand. And that's why, that's why it needed not only Moshe Rabbeinu to build the Mishkan, but later on we know that the Torah calls those people Chachmei Leiv. Right? They were special. They were special. Well, what does Chachmei Leiv mean? So the Svatimet says in a different place, he says, you know, people who really understand what's going on, really understand what's going on. So that the Mikdash, Vasudi Mikdash, which I think refers to the Beit Mikdash in Yerushalayim, which was built after 400 years in Eretz Canaan, and which was rebuilt after 50 years in the diaspora, and which doesn't seem to be rebuilt today in the, you know, in, in the reality that we find ourselves, because that's the diaspora that we bring to Eretz Canaan. We bring to Eretz Canaan. We bring it to the, to, to, I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know that it's bad. I mean, it could be that that's, that was what HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. I mean, we couldn't live with the Beit HaMikdash. Maybe we can live without it. I don't know. I mean, I have no, I'm, not, I'm not trying to promote a, a, a vision or a point of view. All I can say is that, that the Beit HaMikdash is not an issue for us who return to Eretz Israel in the 20th century. But the Beit HaMikdash was an issue for the people who came back to Eretz Israel with Ezra and Nehemiah. It seems to me that the, the fact that there was only 50 years, and with us it's already 
closer to 2,000 years might be an answer to the question on a certain level. But on the other hand, it may be that it's a kind of a blessing. It's a kind of a blessing. You know that Rav Kook, uh, Rav Kook looked around and he, uh, I'm going to talk about the other, the other side. I'm going to talk about the, uh, the Korbanot. The Korbanot, Rav Kook uh, asked himself, he, he, he didn't quite understand the Korbanot, why the Torah would obligate us to kill animals in order to satisfy, uh, satisfy ritual. It was Rav Kook. I mean, Rav Kook uh, actually did it. Now, uh, I don't know if people uh, have changed what Rav Kook said in any way, but that's what he said. And in fact, he takes from the Zohar, he takes from the Zohar, that's a famous statement of the, attributed to the Arizal, that after all, the animals are really just like us. Right? They think, and they have emotions, and they fear, and they attack. I mean, they're just like people. They're just like people. And so the Arizal said, eventually, eventually they'll be more like people. That the, the animals that are edible, so that the Torah allows us to eat, are really very low-level animals. But that the animals will develop and become a higher level, and then you won't be able to do that anymore. And Rav Kook said, Rav Kook said, He said, it makes sense to him. Makes sense that if there's a creation that uh, that thinks and breathes and, and knows certain things and it could develop uh, uh, even further, then uh, why would why would we want to sacrifice them? Why would we want to do that? Right. So he said it could be today uh, animals are at a lower level than the result predicted that they would be, and when they get to the higher level, then then we'll have to stop. Uh, sacrificing. Everybody knows that Rav Kook was a vegetarian. Except that on Shabbos, I think he did eat a little bit of chicken. Um, because he was also a halachist. He wasn't just a, a thoughtful person, but he was a, he was a vegetarian. Um, whatever that meant. I mean, I don't think he was a vegan or something like that, you know. I, th I think he was a... Well... This is a matter of life and death. So I'm going to answer this question. Then I'll tell you what the life and death is. Hello? Great. Must have been about life. Life and death. <laughs> no, I, 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 I somehow mislaid my key to the house. So Miriam just called to tell me she would make it back. That's life. Yeah. So, so, uh, so it may, may be, uh, so that, that's what Rav Cook said. That's what Rav Cook thought, based on, uh, on what the Arizal, what the Arizal wrote. But it comes back to the Svatamet to a certain extent, but everybody thinks this way, that if you could look very carefully at things, you would see more than you imagined the uh, first time around. Like we all have that experience, right? You have experience with music and literature and art and science, uh, whatever. I mean, uh, you, might, uh, you might not get it the first time around, but then if you keep at it, you, you perhaps will get it. 
and it will be meaningful. It'll be eye-opening. It'll it'll change us. So and that's what the Mishkan, or building the Mishkan in the desert, was about. It was about looking at the details and seeing why all the time why God wanted me to do it this way and not that way and use these uh, materials and not other materials. Uh, you could give a variety of explanations of things, but that's one of the of, of the of the. Uh, uh, possibilities. I also say, I say to you that that somehow we lost our connection. We lost our connection to the uh, to the Beit Hamikdash, and it could be that that's a blessing in disguise. I mean, I, Lulay the Mistafino, you know, I don't want to say it could be. It's a blessing that the Beit Hamikdash. We were not able to handle it. We were not able to maintain this level of devotion that was necessary with the Beit HaMikdash in our midst. You imagine that? Vasudi Mikdash Vishachanti Betochav. It's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, what would what we do? I mean, how would we go to work? How would we do anything? The only way we could do it, the only way, it was the way B'nai Israel did it, by rejecting the seriousness of this, of this matter. And so here we are. Here we are coming back to Eretz Yisrael, and uh, and we're gonna and, and there's a bracha, and the bracha is that we were in diaspora for two thousand years, and we lost our feeling for the Beit Hamikdash. Even though you might have put signs up in your house, I remember somebody gave me a wedding present. I mean, for my wedding, uh, he he uh, went to Abu Tor before nineteen sixty seven. He went to Abu Tar here in Yerushalayim. He took a picture of the uh, Golden Dome Bosque of Omar, and he gave it to me. Well, you know, in those days, it seemed like a big deal. But today, it doesn't seem like such a such a big deal. So I think we've we've uh, perhaps uh, blissfully lost our connection to our desire to build the Beit HaMikdash, and we realize, we realize that just as in those days 400 years were needed in order to get to the point where there would be a Beit HaMikdash, it could be that we need a lot more time than that. And we've got a lot more things to clarify before we get to the, the Beit HaMikdash, which is a kind of a pinnacle of things. Okay. Okay, have a good Shabbos.